Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, ADAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen ADAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. ADAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. Evening and welcome to The Late Show. Live on Teachers Talk Radio, it is Tom Hopkins Burke here um, from a slightly cooler Nottingham than um, in the last few week or so. Um, the heat wave of sorts, I suppose, is starting to die down, and our students and our teachers are back at school, and most have been back for the last week. Um, I'm really excited to be with you on Teachers Talk Radio this evening. I'm stepping in for um, the ever-wonderful Tom Rogers, who is currently topping up his tad and trying not to get burned in Spain. Um, And he'll be back on the 18th of September with another great show for you. Now, tonight's show is going to be in two parts. The first part is between 7.30 and 8 o'clock. And then our second part will be between 8.15 and 9pm. And we're focusing on two very different topics, but two topics which I think are very important for teachers to understand and which can have a direct impact on how teachers approach their practice um, in schools. The first of those topics um, is about the issue, as you can see if you're live in the space um, right now, and if you're listening back, you won't be able to, but it's about preventing teacher-to-student sexual harassment. And I'm delighted to be joined um, for this segment uh, by Dr. Kate Dawson, who is already here in the space, so Nathan, behind the scenes, hopefully you'll be able to connect in Kate. And Kate, there should be a button on the bottom right-hand bottom right bottom left hand side of your screen for you to be able to join in now there was a very important study which and kate co-authored um and it's been in the news for the last couple of weeks and it's about hundreds of former secondary school students in the uk and ireland who have said they have been the victim of sexual harassment by a teacher Uh, The study was based on 593 adults' retrospective accounts of experiences as victims of teacher-perpetrated sexual misconduct um, while they were students. And I thought before we talk to Kate, I'd give you a little bit of background, certainly on England, um, in terms of developments in safeguarding in the last two years or so. Um, There's been a huge new focus in keeping children safe in education in the last um, two years on this idea of child on child abuse um and that was renamed last and that was renamed from peer on peer abuse last year um because of this idea that actually the children don't have to be of the same age um and since 2021 keeping children safe in education has also talked about this idea of low level concerns and i'm sure that some of these will um 
be covered in what we're going to talk about with Kate this evening. Now, low-level concerns are part of a spectrum of behaviour according to keeping children safe. And this can include inadvertent or thoughtless behaviour, behaviour that might be considered inappropriate depending on the circumstances, and behaviour which is intended to enable abuse. Um, this can include being over-friendly with children, having favourites, adults taking photographs of children on their mobile phone, engaging with a child one-on-one um, -on -one, um, in a secluded area or behind a closed door, um, and also using inappropriate, sexualised, intimidating or offensive language. Now, schools should have a low-level concerns policy and procedures as part of their overall safeguarding child protection overview. And reading this report, one of the things which stood out for me was the lack of options for children on the end of teacher-perpetrated har sexual harassment in terms of having that confidence to sort of report what they had experienced and actually having to wait until adulthood um, to take part in this survey which has led to this study. Now my guest for the first half of tonight's show is Dr Kate Dawson who is a lecturer in psychology at the School of Human Sciences at the University of Greenwich. Um, her research interests include the role of sexual media in normalising sexual coercion and harassment and um, she was previously a postdoctoral research fellow at the National University of Ireland and she's also worked in applied settings as a sexual health educator in secondary schools and she is the co-author of an exploratory study on teacher perpetrated sexual misconduct in Irish and UK secondary schools. Kate a very good evening and thank you very much for joining us. Um, how are you? I'm good thank you thank you very much for having me. No, thank you it's a, it's a real um, privilege for us to be able to hear from you tonight. Um, I wanted to start um, Back, interestingly, looking at your background about your role as a sexual health educator in secondary schools mm -hmm. and that, what that sort of included. So, yeah, I worked in I worked as a, a sexual health educator in a charity in Ireland. Um, so it was the charity is called Sexual Health West. So part of my role was going around in a team, uh, going to schools and primarily dealing with students who were 15, 16. Um, but sometimes a bit younger and looking, uh, I suppose, doing kind of a full, uh, a full curriculum, which we were definitely not considered, you know, we could definitely be doing more, but it was sort of an introductory program for a lot of Irish, a lot of Irish students. So that kind of started, you know, looking at puberty and reproduction. And then um, some of our add on workshops were dealt with kind of more difficult issues, trickier topics like pornography or, you know, sending nudes and uh, going into more detail around consent. Mm. This is all very interesting because um, those um, teachers who are listening live or listening back, um, certainly in working in England, will be aware of developments in the personal development curriculum where a lot of these issues are now being covered um, by teachers who may not be qualified professionals um, in classrooms, certainly in England. And so, yeah, it's very interesting to hear about your past in terms of raising those issues in schools. Uh, out, out of interest, how, how did you sort of find that experience of going into secondary schools talking about? these issues I, I really enjoyed that job um you it's really like it's a, it's a funny job you know like anytime students always found it hilarious because you might be the first adult to ever say the word you know to say certain words to them um and it gives them opportunities as well to ask anonymous questions which they all got a real kick out of um but it, it was challenging as well because you know when somebody sees you as a person that you can, you know, talk openly about these topics, uh, it did lead to, you know, we would get a lot of disclosures and things like that. So, um, yeah, I, I worked there for, I worked in that area for six years. And, that, you know, as you're saying, you know, some of the issues that you're seeing here in the UK were also the same in Ireland. And 
we have updated our RSE relationships and sexuality education policy um, that it now is now mandatory and you can't opt out based on the ethos of your school. And mm-hmm. a lot of teachers, I suppose the teaching of the curriculum then is falling on teachers who don't feel prepared. Um, I don't feel comfortable enough to deliver the content, especially when you're dealing with, you know, topics like masturbation. And then, you know, the same teacher might have to go on and, and you know, teach them a different topic. And it's just, it changes the dynamic and some teachers struggle with it. Um, but overall, I, you know, I think I, I've always found it easy because I think that it's such an important topic. And growing up in Ireland, um, I suppose growing up in Ireland, we didn't have any exposure to any type of sex education whatsoever. You know, we had speakers come into our school when I was in secondary school with from, and they had, a, you know, came from a very Catholic, very religious back, background. They told us lies about, you know, the efficacy of condoms and protecting against HIV. And um, yeah, this is just something that I felt was really unjust and I wanted to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, certainly as a secondary school teacher, um, it, it has been quite difficult be, be going from sort of being a history teacher to going towards teaching about um, some of these issues. And I think for some of the children, it, it can be quite difficult sort of seeing, you know, being in a classroom with your teachers talking about some of these issues when they're used to teaching these sort of perhaps national curriculum subjects, um, other ones, I suppose. Um, now, you are, pro- you know, you're a researcher and a lot of your re- your most recent research is focused on this issue of teacher to student sexual harassment. Um, we've mm-hmm. seen over the last couple of years in England um, the, a huge focus since the Everyone's Invited website of child on child abuse. So why focus on this issue of teacher to student sexual harassment? Well, a lot of my uh, research come I kind of come up with these studies from a psychological perspective, looking at power dynamics and. When I was, you know, I've been working in the area of sexual violence prevention and, and research for the for the last few years, and all of the higher all of the research on sexual violence um, shows that where there are hierarchies, that people will exploit them, and that generally you will find different types of abuse in in any institution that has hierarchies. And when you know, I I'm part of the active consent program in the University of Galway. Uh, they develop a lot of interventions for, you know, based around consent uh, for for teenagers. And most of our our focus would have been on, you know, student to student instances of harassment, um, non-consent and things like that. And when I started looking, digging a little deeper, um, it really just happened out of a discussion that I had um, with a, part- a research participant uh, who said that, you know, it became very normalized, these kind of behaviors became very normalized from a young age because they'd even see their teachers you know calling calling girls in their class you know, derogatory terms and things like that so out of in- initial interest um, I started kind of going and digging a little deeper and found that there was really no research on this at all except for a, a few studies that have been conducted in, in the states and that that they really deal with people who've experienced or people who were charged with sexual offences against children. Um, but really, there's nothing, nothing's been conducted like this in the UK or in Ireland or indeed in Europe. So this was a pilot study. And the way that we we wanted to use this study to see, well, what are the types of experiences that are kind of coming up? Is this something that we need to investigate further? And what kind of questions should we ask? So it was a very, you know, we kind of used snowball sampling. We developed an initial survey to see, you know, we asked kind of questions about okay well 
what percentage of people experienced X, Y, and Z. But then we left quite a lot of space for people to give, to describe the situations that happened to them. And we're going to use all of that information now to develop um, a larger study that will be, that will conduct on a national level. So we'll be able to get population level data based on this. Um, so yeah, so far, I mean, I think we tried to do our very best to make sure that the findings from the report aren't misleading because I know that some of the percentage values are quite high, you know, like 85% experience sexual um, sexual hostility from a teacher, but that's 85% of a, of a sample of people who said that they had experienced harassment. So I want to just make that very clear. Um, I mean, hopefully this these we just managed to capture the experiences of the few people that this has happened to. But even what was interesting in, the moment that I published the report, you know, it got a lot of press attention and I have had maybe over 20 emails from different teachers in different schools saying that this is something that they're concerned about and that they don't know how to address because, you know, the teacher in question or the person in question, not even a teacher, sorry, I should I should clarify, you know, that the, the member of staff in question is well respected, you know, they're a nice person. It could have been a one off and they're kind of second guessing what they saw. So. I think that in and of itself is is an interesting finding that a lot of people are coming forward. A lot of teachers are coming forward. Um, and so I would invite, you know, as part of our larger study, we are going to look at, well, what are, we know that this isn't happening um, for, for you know, the vast majority of people. We would hope um, that most teachers are doing their very, very best. But what is going on in schools where it is happening? And is there a kind of, is can there be a culture of acceptance? And what does that look like? So we are going to be recruiting teachers um, at a later stage to interview them about the uh, about that question. Um, thank you. Yeah, no, I think, you you know, you've very pertinent points. And I think, yeah, no, it is important to stress, I suppose, that um, because of the nature of how participants were selected, that we can't, we can't make too many secure conclusions at this stage about um, the prevalence of um, teacher-to-student sexual harassment in schools across the UK and Ireland. But what what I think we can learn, and certainly what you've pointed out, is it is there and it's underreported. Um, and I think one of the issues that you sort of went on is, well, yes, some members of staff, they're well-respected, they might be suspicious, it's just a one-off, they've let it slip. And I think that's important with what you said before about the issue of power dynamics. When we look at this sort of very broad question, I suppose, of why people sexually harass others in the first place, you've got the power dynamics, you've got um, this idea of they can get away with it. Are, are there any other issues, uh, any other reasons why, why people sexually harass others from your sort of psychological perspective? Well, we know for the for the most part, people harass. So what's it? What's um what's important to note about harassment first is that harassment is a repeated offence. You know, so it's not a one off thing. So when we were talking about harassers, we're talking about people who've engaged in a behaviour several times or more than, on, on more than one occasion. And really, the key predictor of that is is getting away with it. If somebody gets away with it, and if they get away with it over and over and over and over again, they become emboldened, um, and they think that they can basically do what they want. So that is really what we're what we find in all research around sexual harassment, sexual abuse, any in any illegal or any inappropriate behaviour. Um, there are some people who um, will you know, behave in a certain way out of compulsion, but they are the small minority. What really we're looking here is at a, in terms of hierarchies, is that people are exploiting their position and they're getting away with it over and over again. 
<clears throat> Thank you. Um, now, looking at some of the terms that you've used in the report in terms of them, um, the way in which you've categorised um, some of the responses you've had. You talk about, I mean, the headline figures are 95% of respondents experience sexist harassment, 85% experience sexual harassment, 21% experience unwanted sexual attention, and 14% experience at least one type of online sexual harassment by a teacher. Um, just for the benefit of people who are listening, could mm -hmm. you just explain the difference between sexist harassment, sexual harassment and unwanted sexual attention? Yes. Um, so we used a validated measure that looked at um, four subset, three subsets of sexual harassment and the online uh, sexual harassment one I'll talk about separately. Um, but sex, so it's broken into three categories. The first is sexual hostility. The second is sexist hostility. And then the third is unwanted sexual attention. Um, so sexist hostility is um, kind of degrading or offense, offensive comments that are to do with a person's sex or a person's gender. So in the report, a lot of the examples spoke to, you know, maybe a teacher saying, oh, why would you bother, you know, pursuing sciences? You know, it's not suited to girls or um, teachers saying, uh, making comments about invalidating girls um, pain, period pain. So that would be an example of sexist hostility because it relates specifically to being um, a biological female, for example. Um, then sexual hostility was any comments or gestures of a sexual nature, of a derogatory sexual nature. Um, and it's important to, to note as well that we actually, at the beginning of the study, we categorized this as unwanted sexual um, attention. So, you know, these are offensive comments that people are making about someone's body, commenting on their appearance, uh, you know, saying things like, oh, your uniform doesn't show off your figure or you've lovely legs or um, things like that. And then asking, maybe asking them about their sexual behavior. So asking a teenager, you, you know, if, if they're still a virgin or telling them sexual stories, they would be examples of sexual hostility. Um, unwanted sexual attention then captured, um, I suppose, direct uh, comments or behaviors from the teacher to indicate that they were in that they were interested in having a relationship or a sexual encounter with the with the student so asking them on dates um texting them and sending them nudes uh you know in, in inviting them um and it was back you know for a lift home in their car inviting them back to their place and then for the online sexual harassment we that covers the first three categories, but we wanted to capture how that happened in the online space. Um, so then, you know, it was basically the same three categories, but within an online context. Thank you for that clarification. I, I mean, I, I've read about some of these examples and I found, you know, I found a lot of it um, utterly horrific to be honest and I should point out of course that if you are affected by any issues which have been raised or are going to be raised in this show um, there are plenty of places that can provide help and advice um, citizens advice free and confidential advice on a wide range of issues um, you can get them on 0808-223-1133 rape crisis England and Wales provide counselling and advocacy services at 0808-802-9999 Gallup is an LGBTQ plus anti-violence charity providing support for LGBTQ plus individuals who have experienced harassment or hate crime including sexual harassment there at 0800-999-5428 and for Samaritans provides confidential emotional support 24 Seven on one one six one two three. We've identified these issues here, Kate, and um, in in and you you know there are examples 
have been uncovered and there's sort of qualitative um, responses which um, we can read. Um, what impact do these examples have on students, both when they're still at school, because these are all adults who have responded, but what did you learn about sort of the impact this had on their time in school, but also on their impact, on the impact of these incidents on these people when they've gone into adulthood? That's a good question. And that was one of the things that um, I suppose as a researcher, you know, you become you have to become a little desensitized to dealing with data around sexual violence when you're doing it all of the time. And but when I was reading through this data, what really I felt really quite upset um, hearing about people's stories, reading about people's stories who were saying things like I was really good at this sport. I was really um, you know, I was getting really good grades at science, or whatever the topic was. Um, and I avoided that class. You know, I missed as many classes as I could, even getting into trouble for that. Um, I completely changed um, the module that I was undertaking um, for my exams in order to avoid this person. You know, I dropped out of that. Uh, I dropped out of that sport or that that extracurricular event. Um, and people were reflecting on this experience, obviously, because, you know, we we asked the participants were adults and we were mainly 18 to 34. And they did the study, but they were reflecting on their time in school. And a lot of them said that they feel sad about ref what their life might have been like if they had pursued what they were showing real promise in in school. And, you know, there were kind of there were more examples. We don't know the extent because it's not representative data, but there were examples of people who said that they dropped out of school that, you know, this was part of other things that was going on in their life, but it felt like the thing that really pushed them over the edge. You know, maybe they had stuff going on at home or they were, you know, struggling. And the fact that they couldn't escape from, or that they had kind of difficult interactions in every aspect of their life, that safe school was no longer a place where they could kind of, I suppose, um, get away from what was going on their outside in their outside life. So that was, that's really, really sad and distressing and, I think that's something that we're going to look into in a lot more detail um, because, you know, initially we started this study wanting to look at harassment specifically. But what it turned out was that there were far more than instances solely of harassment, you know, which would involve, um, you know, comments and things like that, that there were examples of uh, of touching and sexual abuse and we know from all of the research literature that child sexual abuse has leaves a really long lasting impact on people's lives and they, that people need to do a lot of work to overcome what happens to them in childhood. And especially when in, it can be especially severe when that's um, the, the abuse takes uh, or is by a trusted person. So a teacher um, in this instance. So these are all things that you know, various variables that we're going to consider in our national study. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I suppose when we look at sort of our impact, you know, from from a teacher's perspective, where I'm sort of sitting now, we have to look at what schools should do next based on this. And as with anything safeguarding, the mantra ought to be, it could happen here. So I suppose when you're looking at how schools should respond to this, you, we, we need to look at this sort of a, how we cre how we educate students to raise their awareness and what they should do in these circumstances, how we train teachers to identify these cases um, if it's happening in schools, in their school, and also the role of school leaders, I suppose, in supporting those teachers as bystanders 
um, in reporting harassment. So I think if we take this sort of three-pronged approach, let's start for students. Um, what what education needs to be provided to students? There's a lot of focus at the moment on child-on-child abuse and on, um, you know, on grooming and on sort of unwanted contact from adults outside of school. How do we raise the awareness of this in schools um, for, in, from a ch- child's perspective? I think... Um... I suppose you'll know that from from working with with children that oftentimes when it comes to sexual misconduct, their understanding of what that means can be can be very black and white. Um, and it takes a long time for them to actually change their perceptions about what's appropriate or inappropriate. That's one thing that came out of the data that people were saying that because it wasn't, you know, an extreme of behavior that happened to them they it felt wrong but they didn't they couldn't put the terminology they didn't couldn't put the words to it they didn't know exactly why it was wrong so i think educating people that there's subtle you know subtle signs of abuse um what 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 they look like and what would might be indicative of grooming because what came out of this data was that it's a lot of the experiences when they were reflecting on them while they were children, they actually thought that it, they, they invited a lot of this attention. They thought, oh, this was, you know, this was the cool, popular, handsome or good looking teacher. So I was really flattered when I got all of this attention. And it's only when they look back on the experience, they realize that something was wrong. So I think it's important that we, um, I suppose, that they're informed about the things that might feel good that are that are actually wrong. Um, I think that would be the first thing that we would do. It is, I, I'm... I mean, I'm not working in schools and I, I'd imagine that, I, I mean, you might be a better person to answer this. I don't know how it would how it would be to roll out, what it would actually be like to roll out an intervention in schools where we say, obviously we're not going to say, talk about teachers um, in isolation, but where ad, any adult might be, you know, behaving in this way um, and teachers might be a part of that. I don't know how, how willing schools would be to participate in that kind of, to, to roll out that kind of training up surely they would have to yeah, it's the interesting isn't it because i think it, you know some teachers in those situations would go well, what are you accusing us of yeah. um, and they'd be fight back on that perspective I, you know from my perspective as a teacher it's very much sort of make sure that every child in that school knows the policy when it comes to safeguarding and if they have a concern about a member of staff go and talk to any any other member of staff because in every school, hopefully, every teacher has been trained in safeguarding and knows what to do if a child makes disclosure. So, from that perspective, you'd hope it would sort of be rolled into safeguarding policy um, more generally. Yeah, but, you know, I think what's difficult, though, for a student is, you know, in their mind, probably all of the teachers are good friends, you know, or they know each other well. And I would say that that acts as a, a quite a big deterrent in that they would feel that if they ha- if anything has happened with a teacher in their school, that they, their first point of contact would be would also be a teacher in that school. Um, I mean that we there obviously well, there needs to be ways around this, but I think because we often have we have to, you know, when when children report an instance of abuse, parents or a school or an adult has to get involved, rightly so, you know, as a protective me- measure. I think that that prevents a lot of people from coming forward because they know that the situation is going to be taken out of their hands potentially so it is a, it's a complicated one um, and we're only at the really the very beginning of understand 
understanding the issue um, in general, but understanding how we can best um, deal with this as well. Mm-hmm. So if we so yes, it is difficult for students to speak out because, but you know, it's trusted members of staff, and you know, schools may not be the best positions to do that. I mean, school leaders have a role to play there, whether that's your designated safeguarding leads, whether that's your head teacher, whether that's your other senior leaders, um, because they have, you know, school leaders have to support either teachers who are reporting what may be low-level concerns or high-level concerns about enough not your staff, but also school leaders supporting children and being able to make those disclosures if they need to. So I suppose the final thing I'd want to ask you, because I'm aware I've only got three minutes left with you, is what school leaders should be doing next. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes EDAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check, or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT, supporting school staff, protecting careers. I think, I think it's worth, you know, all of staff members having, you know, opening a dialogue about this in the first instance. So maybe bringing up the Guardian article, or bringing up one of the articles where this research was covered. And, you know, making it very clear that this isn't a, an issue of black and white, good and bad people committing these types of offences or doing, you know, engaging in these types of behaviours. That it oftentimes it can be and it often is a very charismatic, friendly person who can engage in these types of, who can develop relationships with students, for example. So I think that student, our teachers need the security as well in knowing that, this, I suppose that they'll be supported if they are concerned and they want to, um, you know, maybe report one of their colleagues that their job needs to be protected, their, you know, their identity, their reputation needs to be protected. And I guess that the bottom line is that we really need to instill the idea that, or the belief that we need to stop prioritizing the comfort or the potential discomfort of some teachers over the safety of the children in their care because teachers for the most part are excellent but when there's one bad egg they have so much potential access to students or to young people because of their role and if they're not called up on this or if they're not you know if subtle signs aren't called out from the beginning it can escalate and it has it has done and hopefully this is the beginning of a conversation where people uh, develop more awareness around reporting Thank you. I mean, I should point, you know, there, there are lots of key principles really about the best interest of the child. It's important from a school's perspective um, that the interests of the child are paramount. And, you know, for all of the teachers listening, whether you're new to a profession, whether you're experienced, I suppose the one key thing, if you do have a concern, however low level that may be, 
the one piece of advice is always never do nothing. Um, Kate, thank you very much for your time on Teachers Talk Cricket tonight. And I'm sure that um, those who have listened live will be grateful for your um, input and also all of the teachers who will be listening back to um, your uh, to this discussion as well. So thank you very much, Kate Dawson. You're welcome. Thank you. Now, I've got a very exciting piece of news for all of the listeners here on Teachers Talk Radio, because I'm absolutely delighted to be the first person, first Teachers Talk Radio host um, to reveal that we are bringing this show to you in um, conjunction with ADAPT. Now, teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges, and that's where ADAPT come in. They're not your typical trade union, but instead they're a modern apolitical alternative, offering expert legal employment and mental health support. It's protection without the politics. What makes ADAPT different? Well, they're always apolitical and independent. They specialise solely in supporting individual teachers. Every single one of their caseworkers is professionally qualified, ensuring you get the best advice plus there's 24 7 mental health support whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations adapt are there for you so join the thousands of educators who have chosen adapt to protect their careers subscribe at adapt.org.uk today adapt supporting school staff protecting careers and here's something special for teachers talk radio listeners during september you can use the codes TTR annual or TTR monthly and you will receive a 10% discount on a subscription. With ADAPT you could save over £80 compared to an equivalent union membership. I was talking the other evening with Alistair Wood who is the CEO of ADAPT um, very much about sort of how organisations like ADAPT can help support teachers who find themselves in particularly compromising situations um, through no fault of their own, where, you know, a, a baseless allegation may have been made or they may have found themselves a victim of workplace bullying or something. And it, it was really important to me, I think, that a lot of teachers join trade unions for the protection and ADAPT offers that without a lot of the extra stuff. And it was really interesting looking at sort of how much extra money organisations like ADAPT have in terms of being able to actually look after individual teachers and it's also very interesting that ADAPT now very much exists alongside trade unions rather than in place of them and it was very interesting sort of looking at that history of ADAPT as well. Now I'm saying this because next Wednesday on the 20th of September I am joined by the CEO of ADAPT Alistair Wood and we are going to be talking all about risky business but dark side of teaching. We're going to be looking at how organisations like ADAPT um, can offer that protection for teachers and their careers. We're going to look at some case studies, um, anonymised, and we're going to look at some of the things that ADAPT can do for you and also supporting school staff. They've launched their new 24-7 mental health support and that is really, really exciting. And I'm really excited for Wednesday. I'm not sure if you can tell. Um, I bet you, but I definitely am. And um, being able to delve into some of these ideas is very important. Now at 8.15, I'm going to be joined by Dawn Cox and Kyle Graham to talk about analysing your students' results from the summer. Dawn, you're more than welcome to jump on now if you like. Our previous feature um, ended early. I mean, I, do, I want to talk about results because Tom Rogers, who's listening in tonight, did a fantastic show a, couple, a few weeks ago. Um, and I can't for the life of me remember all the names of all three of the guests, but Dylan William was certainly one of them. And I think, was it Robert Plovin as well? Um, and I remember Tom give, 
going, you know, doing his classic sort of senior leader um, positioning in terms of justifying, you know, getting these, you know, prominent educational psychologists to justify their poor, um, their department's poor education results. And I was thinking, well, actually, you know, I think some of them, like Dylan William, could have done a better job, to be honest. And I think Tom, you know, you know, Tom's fantastic. He could have pushed them further, I think. But, you know, they're really eminent um, guests. And I've heard I've heard a lot of discuss, a lot of talk from subject leaders, heads of department, heads of faculty um, in particular at the middle leadership level who, you know, the students have come in with a set of results in the summer, which they weren't expecting. And. It can be quite difficult for them in September, October. And so hopefully the discussion I'm going to have um, with Dawn Cox and Kyle Graham is going to be about essentially, you know, what as a middle leader, but also as a senior leader, you do with results when you get them in the summer and basically planning the next steps for, se for September and the year beyond and sort of looking at the do's and don'ts of using this data, what is valuable, what is less valuable and sort of doing a little bit of, I suppose we're new subject leads and heads of departments out there, a little bit of sort of bringing a little bit of, I'm trying to think of the words, bringing some sense to the range of numbers and decimals and percentages and all of the things you can have. I myself, um, as a, you know, as a subject lead, my, you know, for politics, we had our first set of year 13 results this summer. And it was really interesting going on our exam board's website and looking at the national um, comparisons, but then also looking at the regional comparisons and the comparisons for similar centres and going on that question by question level. And I was thinking, oh, this is really, really interesting, you know, um, because I can see they've done really well on paper two. I can see they've done really well on paper three. And comparatively, they've not done as well on paper one. So what would you do in that situation? From my perspective as a subject lead was, I'm going to get some scripts back from paper one and see where they've messed up. And I got the scripts back and I looked at what they'd written and I thought, this is good stuff. And they're, they're going to get good marks from this because they've met the order of the assessment objectives. I can tell you now as a politics teacher, the one that they'd never get nationally is AO3 it's always really poor the evaluation our students had evaluated really well I can say that for, as an examiner and when I looked at the marks that were given and they just didn't make sense um, in terms of marks which assumed that at least one assessment objective was in a lower level than it would be expected and there was absolutely no way looking at the writing that it could possibly have got that and so remarks have been sent in um, non-priority university places very fortunately do not depend on this but it's very interesting of course that you know you can look at the raw data and had I not looked at the scripts I'd have gone oh there's a problem with paper one let's see what the problem is and let's see what we can do differently whereas actually looking at the scripts we realized well actually that you know they probably didn't do as well but they did much better than their marks would suggest. So one of the things I'd say with data is don't, necessar don't necessarily over-rely on statistics and percentages. It's very important to have that qualitative analysis as well. Um, so, yes, uh, that would be my sort of takeaway from results day. Um, it's very stressful, certainly for heads of faculty. Um, you know, I'm definitely not a head of faculty. I lead one A-level subject. Um, and... 
yeah, um, I, I see the stress which goes through before, during and after as well. And a lot of the conversations with senior leaders. So hopefully um, we've got, well, we've got Dawn Cox, who is already in as a speaker, and Kyle as well, who is going to call in. And we're going to be looking at analysing your students' results. I was very keen when naming this segment of the show. We could have called it analysing your results. It's not quite right, is it? It's not your results, it's your students' results. And, you know, I think there's one way one way of looking at it is if they're really good, then you can say they're your results. If they're not as good, you say, well, it's the students' results. They are your students' results. The students have done the work. I know Tom um, has written in the past about um, how far teachers are actually responsible for students' results. And it's always worth, you know, and it's always worth thinking, if that student was in another class, how much better would they have done? Chances are probably not that much. But I am joined tonight by Dawn and by Kyle. So I'm going to let them introduce themselves. And I'm going to start with Dawn because she got in first and then to Kyle. So Dawn, very good evening. How are you? Hi, Tom. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So for people who don't know you, Dawn, just introduce yourself. You're an RE teacher, uh, very big in the RE world, um, but also a uh, leader, Focusing in TNF, teaching and learning, anything else for teachers talk radio audience um, ought to know about you? Um, no, not really. I'm an RE teacher, um, head of subject. Um, yeah, had all different roles. Um, but I'm interested in data in some ways and in not in other ways. But I am interested in, in looking at exam results. Thank you, Dawn. And yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on. I remember having you on before historically to talk, you know, try and find any ways in which target grades were useful maybe yeah. maybe you know looking at student results at the end of year 11 this might be one of one of the rare opportunities where certainly at a cohort level proximity to target might be might provide some use but we'll certainly discuss that um, sure. in the next 50 minutes or so kyle a very good evening um one of the many voices from northern ireland we've had on teachers talk radio in the past we have two wonderful northern irish hosts at the moment brent poland and andrea hammer um Kyle, introduce yourself. You've got a new job, haven't you? Hi, Tom. Yeah, a pleasure to, to, to be on. Yes, I uh, just started uh, a week ago today as assistant head teacher for teaching and learning at uh, um, Goldborn High School, uh, just outside uh, Wigan. Um, so, yeah, very, very exciting there. I, I, I've been, um, I'm, a, I'm a historian by by specialism, was the director of history across the Corp Academies Trust uh, now, but they've, uh, they are two for the last two years, but they've significantly upgraded. Uh, they've now got Katie Emery there, so they're, uh, <laughs> they've upgraded from me for sure. There's no, there's nobody would deny that. Um, and yeah, also, also been uh, very interested in data for a long time. Um, somewhat, I got to say the exact same thing that Don did. Actually, it's uh, I'm interested in the interesting bits of, of data. I'm not interested necessarily in making spreadsheets and stuff, but uh, and the the things that data may tell us. And um, Don, can I, Don, can I just say as well that like what you put up on results day um, was. Uh, it had me hooked. I was going through all of the different things to kind of look and see, uh, see all of the different things it could it could tell me, and I really enjoyed extrapolating stuff from that as well. So thank you for putting up uh, everything that you put up on results day because that was a really big help. You were. It was very useful, wasn't it? It was all of the um, grade boundaries and mark. You oh know, yeah. All of you know, really, really useful. So yeah, no, I agree. Having all that. of that in one space was just amazing. Just amazing. You saved a lot of people a lot of time. I think the world owes you a debt. That is leadership, <laughs> isn't it? Saving as many people as much time as possible. Sure. We're all doing the same job, aren't we? So I think it's just useful to have it in in one space. 
And you both talked about, you know, you're interested in data, but data is not necessarily be on it. I'll be honest, I, don't, I quite like spreadsheets. I quite sort of looking in the numbers and trying to find sort of the narratives. Uh, patterns, less so, because, you know, you can find patterns, but unless you can understand sort of why that's appeared, less so. So, I mean, let's start with this idea, I suppose, I'm not sure if it's the best place to start, of sort of building a narrative around results what sort of things uh, you know Kyle you can talk as a trust director but also of course as a head of department Dawn you can talk from your various roles as well when you're looking at a set of results in the summer how do you go about finding that narrative um I think the best the best person who's placed to do that or two kind of best people that are placed to do that are the teachers of the, the classes of the students and um hopefully the head of subject so I I think that actually the kind of the richer analysis comes from those people. Obviously, senior leaders want to have a look, you know, kind of across the board, you know, all subjects and, and for the whole of their school. But I think I think it's really important in this discussion. And hopefully Carl will agree that subjects work really differently. And as senior leaders, um, it would be wrong to treat every subject in the same way when we're doing exams um, and results analysis because subjects do work very, very differently. And there are certain things that you can take as a narrative from, from some subjects which wouldn't work in the same way. I'm thinking of my subject, religious studies, and how different that is to when you're analysing, for example, um, math results. Um, it, they work in very different ways. And I think um, if you're a senior leader, you need to kind of remember that that's important. Yeah, no, I tend to agree with that. And this, you know, senior leaders will often line manage departments and areas and faculties which are not their specialism. And so, you know, I've never been in a senior leader's shoes and will probably never be for a long, long time if I ever do. Um, but I suppose one of those key things is just to understand your subject, talk to your subject leaders about what actually the requirements of the GCSE slash A level are and actually what they need to do. Carl, anything you want to add about sort of building narratives? Is it, you know, it's the subject teacher's place, it's the head of subject's place. What sort of things do you do when you're trying to find that narrative? Um, I think it's really important for everyone to do it um, as a collective. And I think like the thing that I've always said, and I've never really moved away from it, is I, I just think it's all about asking, it's, it's about asking questions of the data. Um, you kind of hinted at it earlier, I think, Tom, when you said uh, we, if we want to find patterns in data, we can tend to find whatever it is that we really want to find in there, whether it's to make us feel a bit better or whether it's to kind of find the answers we're actually looking for. I think it's easy for that to, for that to happen, but... I think it's really useful for class teachers to look at it and go, right, well, where are the things that maybe I can get better at over the next year in terms of did my students perform better or worse on certain topics or papers or questions? Um, similar for, for heads of subject. If a head of subject can look and go, actually, well, as a centre, we've underperformed on this question, then maybe look and go, well, is there something where is there something in our curriculum that's missing? Is it maybe the way we're teaching it? Um, I mean, this this is a big thing that we're actually looking at at the minute is do we have people teaching the spec perhaps that need more training or coaching from us so what can we do to kind of upskill them in that can we kind of let a lean on our lead examiners a little bit to kind of guide people through what certain marks and what excellent looks like in certain questions um it can be quite difficult can't it 
Kyle. For sure, for sure. You haven't joined the space when I was talking about our politics examples, but we'd spotted a pattern which is they'd underperformed in one paper compared to the other two, and then we'd request the scripts back, and we realised that the marking was, you know, and I can speak from a marker's experience, um, the marking was just plain wrong. And so it can throw a bit of a spanner in your works when that happens, and you start getting sort of bad data. Yeah, there's been a few of them. Um, again, we're reviewing a lot of different things at the minute in terms of uh, potential remarks and whatnot. And there is more than usual, I would say, stuff that you're reading and you're going, that doesn't seem to fit where I think that should be or even come close to in some cases. Um, and in that case, you do find yourself questioning yourself a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I think that's... It's, it's about waiting to see what comes back from that as well and raising those queries with the exam board. But... Um, yeah, you're right. That, that can actually lead to a bit more self-doubt, I think, than, than potentially could uh, could could be there normally. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of, you know, because, our, you know, our politics department was one teacher, it's now three teachers, and I've sort of had to train our department on actually what the different assessment objectives are, how to teach it, because it's very different to all of our specialists specialisms which is history and if you wrote a history essay style in politics you wouldn't do very well and vice versa um now you've both sat in that seat as a head of department for a set of gcse results um and there are a lot i mean i don't like the word but there are a lot of stakeholders involved there are students there are teachers within that department there are srt line managers there might be upper middle leaders there might be governors um when you're presenting, find your essentially your analysis of those results. Um, what approaches do you take, and do you sort of vary your approach depending on who or what the audience is? Dawn, I'm happy for you to start on that one. Hi, yeah. Um, I think another thing it's important to say is um, different schools expect uh, probably heads of subject to do more to do different things. I've had people commenting on um, those resources that Carl mentioned saying, oh, I have to do an analysis of um, breaking down gender, breaking down um, people premium, breaking down, you know, so many different things and having to kind of crunch data and comparing it to national averages and things like that. Um, and obviously, I would hope if your school is asking you to do that, that they're going to give you some sort of support in doing that, which is part of um, the idea of putting those, all that information together. So if you weren't getting that support, at least you could go to those key areas. That, that, luckily, this, oh, carry on. luckily, I work in a school that doesn't ask me to do that. So <laughs> maybe um, my school is an anomaly. But basically, um, I think the most important thing is, you know, these results are been and gone other than what you were just discussing here about if there were any anomalies that you might want to put through for um, review of marking. And that is one um, kind of advantage of being able to see the marks and being able to then see um, the student actual papers online. But I think we've just got to think about, well, what actually can this tell me that's going to help my department to move on or as a teacher, my teaching? And it's exactly as Kyle said about looking at whether it is exam skills, whether it is specific content and topics, uh, whether it is how they answer, whether just basic things like rubrics of exams. You know, in my subject, um, they're presented with six themes. They only have to answer four. If students are answering all six, they won't have time. They won't do very well. And it's that sort of thing that can help you for next year 
you know, change your uh, curriculum, your plans, um, how you teach things. I think there's such a rich amount of things that you can move forward with. But I would say as a teacher, as a head of department, I'm going to pull out one thing that I'm going to do this year to make sure that something different happens. Um, again, that's my subject and that's kind of how things go. But you kind of need to take what is quite complex and turn it into something quite simple. What are you going to do differently either the next time you teach that or for the next cohort? I think that's the really important point from the data. But it, it is interesting, and those, that's really important, you know, important things there. I mean, I'm going to Kyle here as a historic history teacher and as a trust director and all of the different examples that you've had to sort of look at as well. Maybe AQN and Excel, but there might be some HCR in there as well. Um, if we look at, say, we're going to go very niche here and we're going to, a lot of people are going to be sort of turned off from this because we're going to talk, I want to talk about Edexcel history, GCSE, paper free, um, question free, A, B, C and D, Kyle, and all of this stuff on Weimar culture. Um, I mean, without getting into the fact that some of the interpretations um, were outside of respect completely uh, or, or in part, um, Weimar culture is, you know, if that's the section B on Edexcel Germany next year, then I will eat my hat live on the weekly review. But you know, you can go, well, yeah, we didn't teach this well. And of course, a lot of, you know, a lot of people didn't teach it well because the average mark on the 16 mark question at the end of the Edexcel paper was about 6.6 out of 16. So half of your students nationally did got less than 6.6 out of 16. So, you know, from a history perspective where it, a lot of the exams sample the domain, but say somewhere in, med, in if you take other medicine paper, yes, because you've got to do trends and sort of on the thematic study, um, you know, it's all about trends and actually there is stuff you'd be able to apply to your teaching. In something like Germany, where it essentially asks probably about an hour and a half's worth of course, is there much value as a history teacher going in those particular units where we need to teach back better when it may not come up for another five years? That's a problem that I think is quite unique to the subject, I think, in the sense of <laughs> history is one of those odd things where there's certain topics that we know are going to come up quite frequently. I know that's going to be something that will be across different different subjects. But um, that's that's always the thing, right? If it's mentioned on the spec, as, as we know that like Weimar culture is, they can ask it. All we can do is we can go, like, well, it probably isn't going to be a 16 marker, and then we can have that kind of moment of outrage when it is, but like at the end of the day, it's all there, I guess. Um, and it is, it is, it is unfair um, in the sense of there's too much in the specs now. Like mm -hmm. I remember being sat on an AQA um, training session with the new, when the new spec first came out and over 50% of the schools were running a three-year GCSE. Well, you know, there's going to be nowhere near that many now because uh, their schools are scared that Ofsted's going to hit them with a big stick for for doing that. So um, it's a really, really challenging one. Um, so, yeah, I would say that you do have to take things with a pinch of salt. So there is an element of professional judgment when it comes to things like that. If you know your students have historically performed okay on the longer question, then you know it's probably the topic or the whatever it was that they were asked about that, that makes the issue. The interesting thing with that one, though, is was for the edXL one, the examiner's report does say that the um interpretations question wasn't answered as badly as they expected it to be given the, the the mistakes that were made within the 
um, interpretations themselves. So that was an but, interesting. But I mean, one. it was still six point six out of six. I mean, uh, I haven't been teaching that spec as long as you, Kyle, or anybody else, or other history teachers. I don't know what the average was on that on that three D in the past, mm. but six point six or whatever it was out of sixteen as an average. Yeah, it's not great. It's it was really low. Hundred percent on the other sixteens on paper one and on the importance questions on um, paper two. Yeah, it made it really it made it really odd that it came up in the examiner's report as as a as a kind of a dismissive thing, really, in a way. But I, I I mean that's what it is. We do have to use our professional judgment in this as well. And and I agree with what Don said is sometimes say we get a bad set of results, sometimes we're tempted to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater a little bit. And I think it's really, really important that we go right, well, what is the thing that is most likely to make an impact here? What's the thing we're most likely to be getting maybe the most wrong or whatever the case may be? What can we maybe, what, what's the one thing we can do and do really, really well? Um, and I think that's worth spending time on. Uh, it's again, not hundred percent easy to get right all the time. Uh, but I think that's a really important point that Don made as, as, as well there. Mm -hmm. Kyle, you made a really important point as well about sort of looking at the trends over time and sort of historic performance. Um, what, what are some of the, I don't know, the dangers of looking at the trends over time. I'm thinking particularly about remarkably different cohorts um, and in a subject like history, you know, that actually a cohort might have done very well on last year's paper, but less well on this year's paper. But I suppose that's what national averages are for. Um, when you're looking at trends over time, then, I suppose, what, 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 what are the things to do from a subject leader's perspective? And what are some of the things to avoid? I, you know, I've talked before about the sort of patterns, but finding explanations. So when you're looking at historic trends, trends over time, what's the thinking process really for a um, subject leader or for anybody any level, I suppose? Dawn, I'm happy for you to start on that one. I think to some extent, there's kind of not a huge amount of value. Obviously, we've got the issue in the, the past three years, we shouldn't be comparing anything with anything, really. Um, and what you can't uh, for school assessed grades. I think you've just got to be really careful, actually. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that, um, you know, as you say, completely different cohort, completely different students. And so actually, it, it's not really worthwhile doing kind of year on year comparisons um, because there are so many variables. And this is what worries me about some schools asking people to, you know, compare how boys did this year to last year well they were probably very different boys um and you know um you might have had some classes that um were on period five um last year and on a friday and this year you've got them um period two on a monday there's so many variables i think that the important thing is to kind of look at the things that are within your capabilities and rather than focusing on groups focusing on the actual skills and knowledge so there's no point saying my target is for next year that all my students on free school meals are going to get grade four and above it's utter nonsense what is a, a better kind of target is to say I'm going to work on the six mark questions and I'm going to come up with a strategy so that all students can get at least half marks on them and I know that that will then mean that all students, whether they boys, girls, free schoolers or not, will be able to get at least 50%, for mm -hmm. example. Yeah, no, I remember sitting in an appraisal. It must have been in my third, third year in the current school. And I remember my 
head of department saying to me, well, your, your low prior attainment progress was rather low, wasn't it? And I was like, well, yes, because I'd won low prior attainment in the class and I don't think I saw them after November in year 10. So that's no surprise. And they were like, well, um, well, why don't you focus on improving the progress for your low prior attainment? I'm like, well, I've got three of them and they're great and they're going to exceed yeah. those dreadful targets. And, you know, yeah, I'm more than happy to set that as a target. Yeah. Go for it. Um, Kyle, um <laughs> looking at sort of the trends over time you know from you know what are the do's and don'ts um i actually think i think there's ways in which you can do it um i do think it's really important that people people acknowledge it's really difficult to do as, as don said over the last couple of years when we've got so many different things in terms of the amount of grades that are being awarded and whatnot and it's just challenging even to compare it to 2019 because a pre-covid world is a very different world to the one that we live in now um but obviously like progress score is much more comparable in, in terms of that whenever that eventually comes out properly and uh, October, I know there's uh, all school leaders across the country are waiting on that coming out at the minute because what will that look like? It's a bit of an uncharted territory. Will it look 2019 or not quite 2019? What do we think? So I do think that was an important one to look at because I think that like, we want to know if our strategies are having an impact, right? So, and obviously if you, it, there's ways of doing this in which, because uh, I do think we can get overly obsessed with tracking things sometimes so if we're going oh every single time my student does this question i'm going to write down how many marks they get and oh look they're improving at it over time and all of that and i think we can sometimes again that's the case of looking for the stuff that we want to um so i think when we're actually like looking back over it is there sometimes in which case and it's always comparing it to national so comparing it to the national figures which i know um aqa for example in particular i've got a really really good um post exam post results analysis system where you can do that on their papers have you expanded the gap to national or narrowed the gap to national or whatever the case may be on a question by question basis and a topic by topic basis um that's that's always why I, I do i mean i'm quite competitive anyway so i always want to see if i can i can do that that's my my whole thing um and wherever the gap is biggest i look to say well less or wherever the gap is smallest whatever the case might be i want to make sure i'm as, as far ahead of national as i possibly can be so i'm always looking to see that but so those comparisons within years, I think, are really key. Looking at it over time is more challenging. But you can look and say, well, you know, uh, oh, I used to do really well on paper one. I'm not doing so well on paper one anymore. What's changed? Um, and kind of then use what you've seen, your kind of almost internal data, your professional judgment to, um, to ratify that as well, I think. But um, there's a lot of caution to be made over time. But I do think I – I actually don't mind progress as a measure, it has to be said, because I think it's uh, – a relatively decent equaliser. Yeah, I think so, especially compared to, say, attainment. And, you know, again, oh, for I've, sure, been, yeah. I've been sat in uh, a praise and you've gone, well, you need your grade nines at 7%. And I'm looking at my students and I'm going, well, look, they're a great bunch of students, but, um, you know, none of these students are projected a nine, even on FFT5. So if, if we can get one or two, that's great. But please don't hold me to it if, if that doesn't happen. But it's interesting, of course, talking about issues around attainment and progress and sort of value added and subject progress index. That's, that's a fun one. Your residuals and your four pluses, your five pluses and your seven pluses. I suppose for those who are listening who are sort of new to subject leadership, who may have, say, taken on, you know, maths uh, or history or, you know, English or, you know, big subjects, I suppose, or science. I mean, science is 
horrendous if you've got triple and combined and you're a key stage four coordinator of science. How many student results is that in some schools? Um, but from a new subject leader's perspective, what are the key performance indicators they should be looking for? And, you know, does it depend on sort of a cohort by cohort, school by school, case by case basis? What are ones which are sort of most important to you? Carl, you've talked about progress. Dawn, what are the ones you sort of look for? Yeah, I think I agree with Carl that progress is really important. Um, it's okay comparing to kind of national data, but it all depends on your cohort. You know, if you're a selective grammar school, you are probably going to be above average, above national, and therefore that measurement isn't necessarily a measure of success for you. So it is that kind of internal progress data. How have students done compared to their internal target grades? Whatever system um, you've used, whether you use... Um, uh, FFT or ALPS, whatever your, however your targets are generated, that's kind of, I guess, what you want to look at because that takes in consideration the individuals that you're that you're working with. Um, so yeah, I think that that idea of progress is really really important. What value are we adding onto these students? And you know, as secondary teachers, we have to um, take some of the um, key stage two results with a little bit of salt. You know, I can spot students straight away for whom their target data is wrong, either that it's way too high or actually it's probably too low. And of course, if it's too low, that's great because it makes us look really good. But if it's too high, we can spend too long, you know, kind of spending time on students that actually are possibly never going to get what this you know, data says, um, and actually we should just be thinking on about, you know, those students that we can make smaller gains with maybe because, um, you know, data's not always great. Do we sometimes, do we sometimes focus, Ben, on sort of, you know, this student is working at a great, you know, how can you tell students working at a grade yeah. three level? It's quite <laughs> difficult, isn't it? Um, but they're working at a grade three let's push them over to a four. Do we sometimes, I suppose, spend much more time focusing on, say, those sort of three to four boundaries and six to seven boundaries, the eight to nine boundaries, than, say, a kid who might be, you know, by whatever metric you're using, working in grade seven on an eight, because we know that sort of the nine, nine, seven plus five plus four plus et cetera, other ones are, tend to be the headlines that people sort of look for. Yeah, so uh, we've talked about this before. I've got no interest in target grades whatsoever. I don't talk to the children about them. I don't know them off the top of my head. What I want to see is gains in their knowledge and their exam technique. So I, I, I don't give grades on their, on their work. So I don't say, oh, this kid, you know, is a three. They need to get a four. I just think, right, they don't know how to put. Uh, to develop reasons I'm going to work on that and work on that and work on that and get them to kind of improve on that because the problem is as soon as you start talking about grades of course then you start talking about grade boundaries mm. and I've seen quite a few people on social media complaining about grade boundaries because they're not what they expected yeah. um, and therefore they've become unstuck I wasn't expecting anything because I haven't used them to determine what I think about a kid I have used the children's work as of, of my idea of how they're getting on, how they're getting on in different topics and different exam questions, and then I push them like that. I just don't look at that data, and I know that I'm weird because of that. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's weird explaining to non-teachers about grade boundaries in terms of, well, you know, and actually to teachers as well, because a lot of teachers don't understand 
about grey boundaries and you know they they are neither norm referenced nor cohort not cohort criterion referenced and that that can sort of confuse a few people in well what well what do you mean they're not sort of you know you know norm reference so you have that lovely bell curve every year you know if you look at history geography i'm not sure about rs um, but certainly in history and geography you don't have a bell curve this year with gcse results you've got a big old bar which is sticking out and those are your grade three students they were sort of disrupting that bell curve um you know quite awkwardly i suppose kyle um target grades how often do you use them? Do they have benefit, or is it about sort of improving the, you know, in your case, historical thinking of the student rather than sort of improving the grade? Uh, I, I possibly echo what Don said. Um, at the end of the day, it's not grades that improve students; it's feedback. Um, and you know, all of the stuff suggests that the second we start to talk to them about grades, um, that can actually switch them off because either they've complete, you know, complete. Oh, I've got this grade completed at me, or oh, I'm tw- I'm never going to be any good at this subject, or whatever the case may be. So, we can, I think, we can, we can overdo grades. We can't necessarily overdo feedback. Um, so I'm more interested in on a, on a piece by piece basis telling the students what it is their next step is. Um, having said that, I know not everyone's like that, um, and I do think that. I mean, it's really it's interesting because I think like grade points have and certainly well targets anyway um, have value in certain scenarios. Like I I need to know them for my, my classes. I need my heads of department to know them because I think sometimes students can be underestimated. Um, and for some reason or another, and I think it's quite an eye-opening moment. I've been there many meetings when I've seen people go, Oh my goodness, his target is that or her target is that we need to really push them. And I think whenever you can see that, um, it's really helpful uh, for people. Obviously, what you don't want is the other, or is the opposite, and going, oh, their target's only that. Oh, they're getting that already. That's fine. Like that's kind of why we introduced progress, right? So we could push people as high as we could. Um, so I think it's a really interesting one. The feedback thing is the most important. Um, so I'm significantly more important than knowing students' target grades. But having said that, sometimes knowing a student's target grade can be a really important wake-up call to the fact that they could potentially be doing better than we're currently getting them to do um, in some scenarios, yeah, again. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I, again, I've sat there as a class teacher and gone, well, this kid, their target grade is a four for what that matters. And they're working as a grade four, whatever that means. And But I think they could do much more than that. I think they could possibly on a good day get a six or something like that. And I've been been told, no, you can't select them for that intervention because they're on target. You should go and talk to, you should go and work with this kid whose target grade is an eight and they're working at a grade four level because... You know, even though you don't, even though you're not quite sure, you know, and you look at what they're doing in the other subjects and they're all at that sort of same level. Yeah, you, you should be pushing them more. And I'm just sort of there like, well, hang on a second. I know my class. I know my students. I know who I can get more out of. And even though that child A is on target, I can def- they can definitely push more. I mean, Dawn, Kyle's talked about how he's used sort of target grades to think about sort of pushing some students and sort of you know that sort of wake-up call in some cases um do you do you, how much of that sort of resonates with you because i know you have a particular position on target grades yeah. mentioned. 
Um, no, I, I agree with Kyle. I think that for teachers um, and for leaders, even um, academic leaders, maybe heads of year, whoever whoever else has some sort of academic responsibility for student, I think that that is really important. And what you would not want to happen is for um, a, a child to be allowed to kind of coast uh, way off where actually where they could be, assuming that that data is is pretty accurate. Uh, what I like to do is I like to see how students are getting on in other subjects as well. Yeah. Um, because actually that kind of gives you a benchmark. Um, you know that we ca- we can sort of um, bunch subjects together to some extent. You know, RS and and history and English. We've got similar sorts of um, questions, extended writing, and you know, maths and sciences. You know, similar kind of skills. And I think that's quite a good indicator as well of, um, you know, how a student is doing with, with, with you compared to other subjects. So, yeah, I wouldn't say that I have huge discussions with students about the target grades, but I do. I think you're right. We do have to have that understanding as a teacher of what that what that might mean and, and to ensure that we're, we are pushing the students to their best. But I don't agree with things like, the, as you just said, Tom, with that kind of like, uh, intervention as such based on target the interventions that I would do would be based on performance of a certain thing so if a child's not doing their homework that's going to prevent them from you know learning what they need to do so I mm-hmm. deal with homework I don't deal with them because they're a grade three that's not done their homework if that makes sense no. um, you know I deal with students that didn't get their conclusion written on their extended answer not because they're a, a, a grade seven getting into an eight or an eight into nine but because they didn't get their conclusions done and I think interventions should be much more targeted on the subject rather than the grade. I do want to come on to interventions as well Uh, this is a great moment for me to say of course that this show is brought to you in conjunction with ADAPT. Now teaching is a rewarding profession but it comes with its fair share of challenges and that's where ADAPT come in. They're not your typical trade union but instead they're a modern apolitical alternative offering expert legal employment and mental health support. It's protection without the politics. What makes it that different? They're always apolitical and independent. They specialise solely in supporting individual teachers. Every caseworker is professionally qualified, ensuring you get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, ADAPT are there for you. So join the thousands of educators who have chosen ADAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. ADAPT. Supporting school staff, protecting careers. And here's something special for Teachers Talk Radio listeners in September. Use the codes TTR annual or TTR monthly and you'll receive a 10% discount on a subscription. With ADAPT, you could save over £80 compared to an equivalent union membership. Let's talk about interventions, because, you know, I I, I don't, you know, I mean, look, the question, I suppose, is you've run an intervention. It's good old assess, plan, do, review. You've run an intervention. You've planned the intervention. You've done the intervention you're reviewing it when you get you you know the results come in in the summer how can you tell whether an intervention's worked or is it completely impossible i mean i kind of start with kyle on that one yeah i mean it's a difficult one isn't it because i think that sometimes we can do so many different things that we don't know what it is that's actually working right mm-hmm. so if we we can adopt a hundred different policies and go oh the results have improved and you go yeah but but what actually allowed for it to improve? Was it the 
whatever you did after school was it this particular thing you did in class and it, it can become really difficult to do but at the same time we want to do everything we possibly can to get the students to the place we want them to um i think it's really useful when you go if you make it bespoke so if you go right we'll work we're working on this particular thing today um and i've invited students who i know um, are struggling with that particular thing, and then you get them all, and then you get those students in for that. Uh, so it's it's kind of bespoke to their target, not their target isn't great, but whatever they need to focus on in the subject. Yes. Um, so I think that's really really useful. But I can also understand the rationale around going. Well, these students are all struggling in terms of progress. We just need them to get in and get things done, or to have an intervention because their attendance isn't great. So let's get them in and get some stuff done in order to get them caught up on that. As from a senior leader perspective, I can understand why those things would happen because you want to get the students and make sure they've done certain things to get to the point where they need to be. But it can become challenging in terms of what's the thing that's having the biggest impact is a really challenging thing to know at that point. Yeah, no, it's, it's difficult, isn't it, in terms of whether it's sort of the whole school culture in the run-up to exams or whether it's that one particular thing you've been working on in class or outside of class. Um, one, one of the things I quite enjoy, and, and I'm going to make more use of this year, not being a form tutor, um, is running intervention sessions or whatever they might look like, I haven't decided yet, during registration, um, which is great because some of the year 11, so I teach don't particularly like form time um, and actually being able to sort of spend 15 minutes with them um, you know it might be doing a quick recap quiz on something they covered in year 10 it might be looking at a model paragraph and constructing another model paragraph those little sorts of you know quick fire quick fire quick wins can be really powerful but Dawn um, I'm, I, I don't know your view on, inter on interventions it may come from the same place as target grades um, how can you tell whether they've worked or can you tell? Yeah, so um, I guess we, we've sort of not really kind of discussed what we mean by interventions. I, I, I think that things need to happen for students where possible in lesson. Yeah. So the intervention, intervention is lesson, certainly not in, in my own time and ideally not in students' own time because otherwise it becomes like a punishment. And if you've got 10 subjects after the same student for a intervention, wow, how to really turn those children off coming into school and education. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, in lesson wherever possible. But again, it comes back to this idea of focusing on one thing. So I'll give you an example. Um, well, this was during COVID and of course it all went really wrong. <laughs> but I was focusing on we have in RS extended responses, 12 mark questions. And that was my focus. And in that year, I'd come up with a way that I was going to teach 12 mark questions and um, support students that, um, to get at least half marks. Because if everybody got at least half marks on those 12 markers, it would get everybody over the grade four um, kind of marks anyway, pretty much guaranteed. Um, and therefore, what I could do is I could then look at the exam results analysis. So as Kyle mentioned, uh, we use AQA. I can easily see on the 12 mark questions how students did on average. Were they getting on average more than half marks? But also, as you mentioned, Tom, getting their papers back. Um, so the two things that I could see whether my intervention had worked by um, teaching this kind of structure is by looking at the results of the 12 mark questions, but also um, getting some papers back from students, especially the ones that I'd wanted to to help them to push to get at least these half marks um, and see how they did. And 
I could see from the evidence that was in front of me that, amongst other things, but this might probably strongly um, contributed to them doing well and getting the half marks. So I can say to myself that it worked. Now, I don't re I didn't really spend much time sitting explaining that to anybody in my school. I just did it. You yeah. know, it worked and I've got something ready in my head for next year's cohort. You know, I'm sort of trusted to get on with it, really. Well, that is a professional autonomy, professional trust is, you know, um, talking to so many teachers on teacher, teachers or radio. It's, um, you know, it's a mixed bag in schools. In some schools, there's bags of it. And in other schools, there's sort of less of it. And, you know, it's great that you've sort of you're trusted to go and do that um, from a subject leader's perspective. And, you know, that is, you know, for the new subject leaders out there, that is sort of assess, plan, do, review in action as a way of sort of looking at these things. You found something where you can improve. You put a plan in place, they go and do it, and then you actually review it. And if they've done it great, you've got something you can use for future cohorts. If it hasn't quite worked, well, look and see what you're going to do differently. Um, and I suppose where I sort of want to end really is this idea because there will be some people who are listening who are subject leaders or teachers and they'll have a senior leader come and say well your predictions weren't that accurate were they and I remember a great example it, it must have been for 2021 yeah it must have been 2021 results um does that sound right or what no they were teacher says great weren't they 22 22 results and uh, the the average grade of my class or the average attainment was exactly right from what I sort of predicted back in February, March of year 11. But actually, when you looked at the individual grades, there was a whole sort of, you know, there was some up two grades, some down two grades, you know, and there was a, you know, was a lot of sort of movement, but the average was right. So can we predict grades accurately? We've talked about grade boundaries. We've talked about some of these issues. If a senior leader goes to a subject leader, whether a new experience, and says, well, your predictions weren't accurate, Kyle, what, what, what should they say in return? I mean, first of all, I think that that's something that, that senior leaders have to do, isn't it? Where we're, we're judged to some extent on the accuracy of our predictions, um, for which I, you know... <sighs> I'm not. I'm not sure it's the right path for people to be going down in terms of is that the right thing to do. But it is what something we have to do as schools. We're, we're where, kind where of. Do think, where do you think the pressure comes from then? If it's, it's an external, it's an external pressure. We're 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 asked to make sure our predictions are are accurate. And I and I can see the reason for it in some ways. What the main reason for it is: are we truly judge? Are we making the correct? Um, are we placing our energy in the right places? If that makes sense. So. That's that's the that's the most important thing from it is if we are getting the predictions really wrong, then are we maybe focusing on the, some? Are we missing out on some of the students who needed our intervention earlier? If that makes sense, or needed some extra support earlier? That's that's the key thing there. Um, uh, that, that and that's that's the most important thing from it, I think, rather than anything else. Um, do we actually know? what success looks like or what an excellent thing looks like? Do we know how the students get to answer questions effectively in those uh, kind of scenarios? Are we teaching them the right stuff in terms of technique and questions? Um, that those are, it's, it's actually, it's one question, but it has about a thousand questions underneath it, I think. It's not a nice, nice question to be asked, but it's, it's, I think it's less about predictions, uh, that question, and more about 
um, do, are you teaching them the right stuff essentially mm. and, and, and are you placing your energy in the right places? I suppose, yeah, I suppose it's more about teacher knowledge of a specification of yeah, for sure. exam technique. Uh, but then, like, for example, let, let me think of an example. If you're an A-level English literature teacher you, this year, you might have gone, well, you know, they're writing really, really good essays, but all of a sudden the grade boundaries have changed in a way we didn't expect, and they've done much worse, and therefore our predictions are off. But the way in which we taught them was, you know, in line with what we were expecting, and we were just thrown by this, you know, turn of events which we could not have foreseen. Yeah. I think in that case, I mean, the, the most important thing is to talk about what your actions are. Um, like, if, because everyone's going to have a, a year where maybe something something left field happens, right? So it's less about here's, here's the excuse for whatever it is that's happened. And it's more, well, it wasn't ideal. Here's some things that happened, but here's what we're doing to mitigate that from happening in the future. That's the most important thing is just using anything as a, as a, as a learning curve, I guess, and, and having that way of going, yeah, this wasn't where I wanted it to be. Here's my actions to make sure it doesn't happen again in the future. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's the most important thing you can have prepped when speaking to anybody about any kind of results is what are your next steps? What are your actions and what are your learning points from it? Yeah. Um, Dawn, what, what do you do if slash when you're asked about the accuracy of your predictions um again it's not a huge thing that we discuss um and i totally agree with kyle um i think that you know the horse has bolted <laughs> uh sitting there discussing that predictions aren't right is, is the wrong end of the conversation i think um predicted grades that kind of the most important kind of use for them is obviously for students for the next steps applying to college applying to university I think as senior leaders, the most important job that um, they have starts, you know, when that child starts, well, starts year seven or even starts their GCSE, um, is talking about curriculum, talking about planning, talking about feedback, talking about assessment, talking about homework, talking about attitudes, and and not this kind of end conversation about well, your predictions didn't match. Because I, I believe that if teachers had the correct training and they've got the correct knowledge of which new teachers will need, um, then all of those things together will come out with something that's about right. I think that it's not a science. Um, you, you know, nobody, you said that, you know, it all roughly turned out okay, but that's not, you know, because you knew, because you don't know, because there is um, a fluctuation, as we said, and sometimes there are issues with marking. And holding teachers to account on predicted grades is the wrong thing. Actually saying, okay, you know, what have we done? What is this looking like? What are we going to tweak? What are we going to change? Is the right conversation, I think. And sort of the same question I sort of asked Kyle, where, where does that, pre- you know, you, it's like, you say it doesn't happen in your school or all that much. Where, where do you think the pressure does come from when it comes to sort of senior leaders being, you know, are asking about this issue of accuracy yeah. predictions? Because... Um, from what Carl said, it sort of doesn't it doesn't come out of thin air. There's accountability yeah. which is on the school senior leads themselves. Yeah, I think it's 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 a uh, a control thing for senior leaders, which I absolutely understand um, because they want to know where we're going, and obviously, if there's any issues, they want that to be sorted. But I think the culture, the ethos of um, 
the school starting down in year seven you know what do we do if a student has missed their homework in year seven because we don't want that happening in year 11 or year 12 or year 13 what do we do if a student fails to complete a task that they've been asked to do in class we want to nip that in bud in the bud in year seven so this is a long-term culture within a school um that's about a kind of a long-term plan you know, how are we supporting heads of subject with their curriculum writing? If they're new, what do we do to support them in that? What sort of training? How can we buddy them up? All of these are much, much more important questions, I think. You know, I hate this phrase. I've seen people say this on social media, but it's trusting the process to get there. And actually, I, I believe that if you have that along the way, that you're supporting your staff along the way, then the results will sort of take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Trust the process. That's a great point to end on. Dawn and Kyle, um, some absolutely fantastic contributions. And we know that for subject leads um, and heads of department, um, new and experienced alike, um, your contributions this evening will be very, very useful for them. So thank you so much for your time. And I hope that 23-24 is a really productive and successful academic year for the two of you. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Thank Tom. You. We've got some fantastic shows coming up this week on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, tomorrow, back on Spaces at 7.30pm, Adrian Buffoon is the special guest um, with the wonderful Lucy Newberger talking about his new book, Wellbeing in the Primary Classroom, published by Bloomsbury. Fantastic show coming up there. Also on Tuesday at 9pm over on Podbean, we have Emily Edwards, who asks the question, why does lesson planning take so long? That's a great question for some of you um, less experienced teachers and your trainee teachers who might be struggling with lesson planning, especially those in new schools as well, who might, you know, have to plan from scratch because they're not in a particularly supportive department and you never know these things until you actually join it so we've got two great shows tomorrow night um nathan ginn is back on thursday we've got education tonight on um, at 7 30 on thursday as well and another space tolly McCarthy is back on 7 30 p.m on friday the 15th of september and anna hudson is back as well on spaces sunday the 17th of september at 11 a.m on the sunday social um after me though tonight on podbean we have Richie Slack. Richie Slack is joined by James Bruce, a film studies head of department, to discuss the impact of using film in the curriculum and the effectiveness of films in education. And you can listen live to Richie at 9pm on the Podbean app or live on the website ttradio.org forward slash listen hyphen live. And it's a great time again for me to tell you that teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. And that's where ADAPT come in. They're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern apolitical alternative offering expert legal employment and mental health support. It's protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? They're always apolitical and independent. They specialise solely in supporting individual teachers. Every caseworker is professionally qualified, ensuring you get the best advice. Plus, it's 24-7 mental health support. Join the thousands of educators who have chosen ADAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. ADAPT, supporting school staff, protecting careers. And here's something special for Teachers Talk Radio listeners during September. You can use the codes Annual or TTR monthly, and you will receive a 10% discount on a subscription. With ADAPT, you could save over £80 compared to an equivalent union membership. 
We've also got some spaces left for hosts this academic year on Teachers Talk Radio. Um, if you're interested in hosting, then drop us an email, info at ttradio.org, or you can DM us on X, previously known as Twitter, um, at TT Radio Official. We have spaces on Podbean and, of course, on X spaces as well. Um, I'm back next Wednesday, the 20th of September. I'm joined by Alistair Wood, the CEO of ADAPT, to talk about the risky business of teaching and how organisations like ADAPT can protect careers and support school staff. Um, until then, I'll be back on Sunday, of course, on the weekly review um, at 11am on Sunday, reviewing the week in education with our wonderful TTR panel. But until then, it's been a pleasure and enjoy the rest of your evening and enjoy. have a good week. Take care, everybody. Good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.